Welcome to episode 7 of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science in the City podcast, co-produced by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode 7, How Do We Know What We Know? Several months ago, we began the first episode of this series by presenting a problem. Let's say you're trying to eat better, and you want to inform your diet by keeping up with all the latest developments in nutrition science. Well, good luck. Just looking at all the notices and advertisements printed on the food packages themselves, let alone doing an internet search or reading a book or two, will unleash an overwhelming deluge of conflicting recommendations. Fat is bad, except for the good fat, which we thought was this, but it's actually that. So, what can you do? Well, with this series, we've tried to give you some tools to help you start working your way through the morass of studies and reports and advice. Solid information about how your digestive system works, and balanced reports of current scientific thinking on some of the most controversial issues in nutrition. Micronutrients, simple carbohydrates, dietary fats, and sodium. Through all of this, though, there's been an underlying question that we haven't directly addressed. Why can't science and the food industry come up with a straightforward, conclusive answer to such a basic question as what should we have for dinner? Why are there so many conflicting reports and studies and recommendations to begin with? Today, we're going to try and give an answer to that question. It's an answer that will have a bit to do with human nature, a bit to do with the nature of government regulations, and a lot to do with the fundamentals of how science works. It will also have a lot to do with something called biomarkers. To begin with, I should mention that while the expert testimony in all the other episodes of this series was drawn from one-on-one -on -one interviews, in this episode it's drawn from presentations given at a conference entitled Biomarkers in Nutrition, New Frontiers in Research and Application, sponsored by the Sackler Institute and held here at the Academy this past April. Let's start with a fable. A very old and famous fable that originally came from India. Here, telling it in a 19th century British version, is Dr. Gerald Coombs, director of the United States Department of Agriculture's Human Nutrition Research Center. There were six men of Hindustan, to learning much inclined, who went to see an elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. Now you know this story, it's ancient, that goes on to describe where one man feeling the side of the elephant concluded that the elephant was very like a wall. One touching the tusk, that it was like a spear, touching the trunk like a snake, the leg like a tree, the ear like a fan, and the fellow who touched the tail concluded that it was very like a rope. So six blind men of Hindustan disputed loud and long each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each were partly in the right, all were in the wrong. I won't comment <clears throat> on the obvious fact that these were men <laughs> who came to these odd conclusions, but I will observe that this is very like the biomarker situation. And for that reason, uh, because they're biomarkers of nutritional status are not only necessary and important, but confusing and disjointed, what he's getting at is a fundamental problem with nutrition science. Like all science, it's based on observation. 
but it's very hard to observe exactly what's happening inside a living human body. You can't cut people up just to do scientific studies. And even if you could, it's unlikely that you'd see anything like normal bodily function when you did. You can do animal studies, of course, and that gives you a bit more latitude about how you can isolate and handle your test subjects. But those are limited by the fact that laboratory animals, rats, mice, guinea pigs, aren't people. And they have different biology than we do. Remember in episode two, when we talked about how long it took science to realize that scurvy is a vitamin C deficiency? Well, one of the complicating factors was that they did extensive studies on rats, feeding them vitamin C deficient diets to see if they developed scurvy. The rats didn't develop scurvy. And we now know it's because rats can manufacture vitamin C inside themselves without having to eat it, like we can with vitamin D. It's also hard to experiment with nutrients by means of randomized trials like we do with drugs. This is because we never eat individual nutrients one at a time. They come packaged together in foods. And every food has dozens or hundreds of different individual bioactive nutrients in it. And there are always dozens or maybe hundreds of different kinds of foods in different stages of digestion or storage in your body all at once. And they all interact. Here's Dr. John Milner who's chief of the Division of Cancer Prevention of the Nutrition Science Research Group at the National Cancer Institute in Washington. The problem with foods is that we've got about 25,000 bioactive food components and lots of interactions that can occur. Uh, when I talk to people at NIH about this, they scratch their head and say, oh, I would rather deal with one drug because it's got a side of action. And I'll have to deal with 25,000. But we all eat. And we actually ought to be talking about these 25,000 and what they might be able to do. With all of that going on, it's really difficult to get a clear picture of what a single food, let alone a single nutrient, is actually doing at a chemical level. The upshot of these limitations is that most nutrition science is based on two kinds of studies. The first are epidemiological studies. Now, we've talked about the problems with using epidemiology to study nutrition several times in this series. But to sum up, an epidemiological study is one that looks at trends across large groups of people. For instance, they'll say there's a particular group of people that doesn't have much saturated fat in their diet, and they also seem to have low rates of heart disease. Therefore, maybe saturated fat causes heart disease. Sometimes epidemiology can be right on the money. For instance, the evidence against smoking was largely epidemiological. And very few would disagree that fewer people smoking is a public health triumph. As we've seen, though, epidemiological findings can be really problematic. One reason for this is that because people don't live in a lab, these studies often depend on people reporting what they eat. And it's been shown over and over again that people report what they eat with wild inaccuracy. Just to show you that if you take a food frequency questionnaire and you start uh, really going back and analyzing this, we're pretty lucky if we get about uh, a 0.3 correlation. About 30% of the time you know what you're talking about. If you do a seven-day recall, <laughs> we can get that number up a little bit to about 50%, maybe 60% if we're lucky. Boy, that means you're half wrong, doesn't it? Another danger in applying this kind of study is one that anyone who's taken first-year logic in college could tell you. Correlation doesn't equal causation, or the post-hoc ergo-propter-hoc fallacy, if you prefer the original Latin. 
Which means just because two things happened to the same group of people isn't necessarily proof that one of them caused the other. It could just be a coincidence. And the result of your finding is caused by something else that you haven't tested for. So, whenever possible, nutrition scientists double-check epidemiological findings by comparing them with the results of the other kind of study that they can use in place of direct observation, studies involving biomarkers. A simple way to define biomarker might be something that we can test that we use to draw conclusions about something that we can't. Here's Dr. Coombs again. Something we can um, measure in an accessible tissue that gives us information that we're really interested in about function. So this being a proxy for that, and this being a proxy for that, more or less. One problem here is that bit about accessible tissues. There are hundreds of different tissues in the body, but there are only a handful that we can access without performing surgery. So in dealing with biomarkers in human populations, we're limited, practically speaking, to uh, what we can get out of blood, urine, hair and nails, and buccal cells. Buccal cells are taken by swabbing the inside of your cheeks. You can add a couple of other things to that list. Uh, stool samples, for instance, and body temperature, and observations about the skin and eyes and gums. But there really aren't very many. Actually, the symptoms of scurvy, pale splotchy skin, loose teeth, and so forth, are good examples of a collection of biomarkers. A doctor who recognizes them knows you have a vitamin C deficiency without actually having to measure the amount of vitamin C in your system or monitor the amount that you're eating. You could sum up the difficulties with both of these kinds of studies by saying that they provide clues, not definitive conclusions. Like the six blind men and the elephant, you can make accurate observations, but still come up with wildly erroneous hypotheses if you don't have enough data. And in a system as complicated and hard to study as the human body, or the body of any animal, it's really hard to know when you have enough data. Here's Dr. Milner again. And I wanted to show you one example that I hope will knock your socks off, because I, I love this story. This is a story about a lady that was doing work on a gene that is overexpressed in an animal. And it, it, this gene is the Hox gene. It is associated with poor differentiation of bone. It happens in cancer patients. This young lady was doing work in Arizona and got a job offer, even in today's climate. She got a job offer. Isn't that phenomenal? And it was in Nebraska. Now, these two states are not that far apart, but she took her animals that looked like that poor bone development over there. And here he's pointing at a slide that shows a wildly deformed rib cage and spinal cord. And she moved them to another state, and they looked like this. And now a seemingly perfect ribcage. Wow. All she did was cross state lines. But she did one other thing. Unbeknown to her, the diet was much higher in folic acid in the place she went to, and it completely masked the overexpression of that gene. So I say to you, how often is that happening to us? And we don't really know what the intake is, and we don't know that gene, and we don't then understand the relationship. And I, I think it happens all the time. And there are so many of these complicating factors that can be so easy to miss when you're trying to draw conclusions about the results of a particular study. For one thing, when you eat something seems to have an effect on its nutritional qualities. When you eat it in relation to other things, but also perhaps just when during the day. 
And so timing, I think, is going to be very important when it comes to biomarkers. We haven't adequately addressed the importance of circadian rhythm when it comes down to biomarkers. And I think that's where we ought to be headed. If I happen to measure the enzyme at the wrong time, I'm not going to see a response. And so we're going to have to work out some of those details. But I, I think permanent changes are likely not going to be the best indicator of who's a responder and who's not. To pick another issue, there are literally trillions of microorganisms living inside your body. And they're supposed to be there. All kinds of bacteria and such that you have a symbiotic relationship with and that we know play a really important role in digestion. We don't actually know exactly what that role is yet, though. The first complete list of these critters, called the human microbiome, was just released a few weeks ago. The hard work of going in and figuring out what they all do will take years, maybe decades. There's lots of evidence that microbes are important. We don't understand it. We don't know what's normal. Uh, and there aren't a lot of pooper scoopers out there that really want to do this kind of work. So uh, we're encouraging more of you to do that, but uh, it's challenging at best. Now, all of these challenges wouldn't really mean much to anyone except the scientists if this were almost any other kind of science. But nutrition is different. You can live your whole life without being aware of quantum mechanics, but everybody eats and has to consciously decide what to eat every day. And so nutrition is news. Studies that the scientists involved know are only small pieces of a much larger puzzle are often reported by the media as if they all by themselves pointed to real conclusions. And so we get hyperbolic reports about the health benefits of one food after another with very little context. Also, nutrition is a business, a big business. And food marketers are very interested in reporting the potential health benefits of the food they're marketing so that you'll want to buy more of it. In this country, it falls to the Food and Drug Administration to regulate these kinds of claims and make sure that a food isn't being sold by claiming it has a health benefit that it doesn't have. In order to do so, they've developed a short list of what they call surrogate endpoints. These are biomarkers that they've decided have enough weight of evidence behind them to be taken as real signs of positive effect against a particular disease. To explain, here's Dr. Paula Trumbo, Acting Director of Nutrition Programs at the FDA. And, and how we define a surrogate endpoint would be a risk biomarker that has been qualified in such a way that it is considered to be a good predictor of a particular chronic disease. And um, here are some of the surrogate endpoints that we use when we're conducting the pre-market review of a health claim. And for the ones that we have reviewed, which are coronary heart disease, um, we have L total and LDL cholesterol and blood pressure. We have uh, one surrogate endpoint for cancer, that's colorectal cancer, osteoporosis being uh, bone mineral density. Uh, for diabetes, it's uh, fasting blood sugar levels and, and insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes. So to make a claim that a particular food is beneficial in regard to a particular disease, there's a pretty thorough review process the manufacturer has to go through, and a very specific set of criteria they have to meet. A complication for us in the public 
is that current government policy draws a distinction between these kinds of claims, which they call health claims, and another kind that they call structure function claims. Where it's not about a disease, uh, but more about maintenance of uh, functioning or body structure, such as um, lutein maintains healthy eyes, or this uh, substance X provides good mental well-being. And if you notice what I just stated in those two claims, I'm not mentioning chronic disease at all. It's really about functioning, it's about maintaining, it's not about risk reduction or increasing the risk. Those are called structure function claims and FDA uh, does not conduct the pre-market review of those type of claims and that's generally what you see on dietary supplements. If they have a claim on there that resembles a health claim and we haven't uh, reviewed it, then that it's considered misbranded and so our compliance people can send out warning letters on that. But if it's on a structure function claim, all that's required is that for dietary supplements, the industry uh, submits a post-market notification, I believe within 90 days. And for conventional foods that can also bear such claims, there's no notification. So the regulation of structure function claims that really came out of supplements and Deshae um, there's, there's less authority over, over that. So, let's say you're a manufacturer of baked beans, and you want to put a label on your cans that makes a claim about a specific disease. For instance, beans fight heart disease. You have to prove to the FDA that that's true, based on a very narrow set of guidelines. That can of beans has to be proven to either reduce LDL or total cholesterol, or reduce blood pressure. If, however, you want to make a more general claim, for instance, beans, beans, they're good for your heart, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Because of this, it can seem that there's much more consensus than there really is about the health benefits of a particular nutrient. Here's Dr. Milner again. It's a biomarker that we often use and we equate foods to their antioxidant properties. I don't candidly know what that really means when it comes down to it. It's not a terribly good marker of anything except a relative comparison of food. We actually need to step back and start looking at biological processes, start identifying those foods for which ones have the greatest impact on cellular processes that are associated with health. Within the nutrition science community, there is widespread agreement that one of their top priorities needs to be the identification of more new and better biomarkers. Particularly biomarkers that bring us closer to an understanding of someone's personal nutritional needs. Because another big problem with food labeling and nutritional reporting is the assumption that the same diet is good for everyone. As we discussed when we talked about sodium, the more we learn about nutrition, the more we learn that this really isn't the case. We have some problems even if we do know what's uh, being consumed, and that is that somehow we've decided all people are equivalent, and I think that's like comparing apples and oranges. One particularly exciting branch of research in this direction is in nutritional genomics, seeing what we can learn about someone's individual dietary needs by studying their DNA. Just a brief synopsis of what that means. It is, for, for you not involved in this area, it is how our genes and epigenetic processes modify the response to food components. One I wished I had 
is the one, this one here, the APO, uh, uh, APOA5 gene polymorphism. When you have a polymorphism in that gene, you can eat more and more and more fat, and you don't change your body mass index. Isn't that a gene to have? God, I'm looking for it. I'd love to be able to eat it and have it incorporated somewhere. Um, you know what? It's about 20, 25% of the population. If you don't take it into a consideration and you do a high-fat diet, they're not going to respond. And then you're going to have variation in your response rate, and you're going to say, oh, well, diet or fat didn't do anything. So these are important factors, and these, again, I think are biomarkers that we need to know something about. The problem with all of this is that there is not a simple biomarker that will tell us from the beginning to the end the response that we'll see. And so what we really need is a very effective bioinformatic tools to tell us about all the way through from genes all the way down to the metabolome and integrate it into who's a responder and who is not a responder. That's all well and good. But while the scientists are continuing to do the good work of learning more and more specific information about nutrition, what are we, the general public, to do in the meantime? We still have to eat every day. The best answer I can give might be the moral of this whole series. Take a deep breath before making radical changes in your diet. Carefully consider the source of information when you hear that a food product you've been eating is better or worse for your health than you thought it was, and don't panic. Above all, the more you know about the science behind nutrition, the better equipped you'll be to make good decisions. We'll be back in a few months with more podcasts that we hope will help. Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Dr. Gerald Coombs, Dr. John Milner, and Dr. Paula Trumbo, and to all the experts that appeared throughout the season. This podcast was a production of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us on the web at scienceandthecity.org and nyas.org nutrition. And also, please feel free to share your thoughts with us about this podcast or any Science and the City program by email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.